Welcome to Lumpen Week in Review, the show that covers the past week of news, happenings, and programs presented on Lumpen Radio. This week, we chat with Senator Tammy Duckworth about her incredible life, learned about the emerging market for personal data in Europe, and chewed over the failed unionization effort at Amazon. All this plus the latest from Eureka Cast Now, Size Matters, and the Biden Files. It's the Lumpen Week in Review for April 30th, 2021. The boys from I-94 spoke with Illinois Senator Tammy Duckworth about her life and career. Duckworth discussed growing up a member of the working poor in Hawaii and Thailand, her military career and horrific combat injury, breastfeeding on the floor of the Senate, and how she thinks Donald Trump doesn't love America. I-94, Lumpen's Books and Literature show, airs every Thursday and Sunday at 11 a.m. Tammy, thanks so much for spending time to talk with us today. I want to jump right in. One of the things, uh, there's two things that struck me, first of all, about reading your book. The first thing is that you spent your life serving our country in the military, and I could not believe that, that you did that as a child who suffered gunfire in Phnom Penh in 1975 when you were trying to leave that country. Had I been you, I would have stayed as far away from weaponry <laughs> as absolutely possible. But getting to that, I also want to say one thing I did not know about you, and, and I think this is so apt to talk about right now, you grew up as a member of the working poor, and you talk very eloquently in your book about the travails that you and your family suffered. Your mother had to stay in another country. Your father was out of work very often. You spent a great deal of time hustling, as you put it, in Hawaii. Can <laughs> well, you, I did hustle. You did, yeah. I mean, it's yeah, amazing. I hustled yeah. tourists. Yeah. yeah. It's yeah. great. My, 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 my communications director said when he when I let him read the draft, he, yeah, we might want to change some of this for money playing beach volleyball. I'm like, yeah, but that's me. That happened. He's like, I know, but I'm like, no, no, people will like it. It's okay. That was a long time. I don't hustle people for money playing beach volleyball anymore it's all right I, that was we all thought that was amazing and we're thankful that you had that in the book but one of the things that i brought that up was because you were one of the few people that i can think of who are serving in congress who actually knows what us poor schlobs are going through we're we're working yeah. stiffs this is a blue collar show and i wondered if you could talk a little bit about that and how that influenced your service in washington yeah at one point when my dad lost his job in his 50s uh he couldn't find another job for almost five years. And, um, you know, at 16, I became the only person in my family who could have a job, uh, who could find a job. And I worked for minimum wage. It was like $3.40 an hour. And I was grateful for that minimum wage because they couldn't underpay me because I was a kid. They had to pay me because it was the law. Uh, and then, you know, and I did everything I could. I, I, I dug through garbage uh, to turn, you know, return cans and bottles. I, um, I, t I talked in a book about hustling tourists. I would play beach volleyball and, and pretend that I couldn't play. And, you know, uh, me and <laughs> me and a buddy would, we would, we would win these games and, 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 uh, you know, five bucks here, five bucks there and to this day, do not get between me and money on the ground. Even if it's a penny, <laughs> I will roll over you and with my wheelchair. I am not embarrassed. I am not shy. Uh, cause at one point in my life, you know, we could find a dollar it meant that my brother and I could eat school lunch and school breakfast because it was 25 cents a piece. Um, and, and yeah, I know, I know what, pe what hard, I know how hard people work and this whole argument that the working poor are just not working hard enough is baloney because I never worked harder in my life, whether it was as a soldier or as a Senator than I was, than I ever did when I was 16 trying to put together a buck a day so that my brother and I could eat the next day. 
Yeah, I agree with you 100%. I, you talk about in your book that the Duckworths were a military family. And my immediate family, my stepbrother served, my sister served, my brother-in-law served, my nephew served, and I served. And, you know, my family had eight kids total between my mom and my stepdad. And one of the options was you either went to college, got a job, or you went in the military. And I think that um, your experience in bringing that in, because, I mean, how many people in our government have served. It's very small, just like in our general population. And I think that's great because you bring another aspect to the table that many people have no idea what it's like. Yeah. Um, sorry, go ahead, Senator. No, no, I think, I think you know, it was more true before that more people served uh, across our country. And, and part of it had to do with the ending of the draft. Um, I support the end of the draft. I don't think there should be a draft, but it did make the experience of military service one that became much more segregated. Yeah, we were we were actually talking about uh, this before the show. How in some other countries services required, like Israel, the the guys were saying Germany, and how it probably creates a lot different culture uh, um, just among um, the greater population. Because I haven't served. My my grandfather's both served in World War II, and I have uh, several friends who who are in, who have served in the military. By the way, Corporal Harris, Airborne Sapper, served in Iraq when you did. He says thank you and uh, hello. He also mastered in poli sci at NIU. Sorry, just had to squeeze that in there. That's uh, awesome. You got to be you got to be careful with those sappers. You know what they are, right? They're they're grunts with explosives. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> he blows stuff up. Not, not only are they grunts, not only are they infantry. They give them extra explosives, man. But those guys are trouble. <laughs> he's recently gone to the uh, the VA to help him uh, start a business. And in, in your book, you talked about how your father was. Um, was hesitant and, and ended up not accepting some of the benefits from the VA yeah. because he thought maybe he was taking away from other people. Can you talk about how the, those benefits work and how that's just not the case? Yeah, so veterans think oftentimes that, you know, take care of my buddy. I, you know, take care of my buddy first. That's what you do in the military. You look, at, you look out for each other, right? Um, when I was wounded, my buddies were saying, hey, take care of Tammy first. She's more badly wounded than I, than I am. And I was saying, take care of my guys first, you know, uh, take care of them first. I'm okay. And, and that's, just the, that's just the way you are. You watch out for one another, for your brothers and your sisters to your left and your right. Um, that, does not, that is not the case in the VA, but, they, but veterans bring that with them. So they think that if they get to the VA and they go to VA for healthcare, it means that some other veteran is being turned down. So that if they are not sick or if they have some sort of form of health care already, they say they don't go to VA and they don't get registered. Um, this, in fact, hurts veterans because uh, the VA decides whether or not they build a new hospital or provide more money for veterans based on how many veterans are in a particular area. So in Illinois, the VA thinks that there are 800,000 veterans in Illinois because that's how many have registered with the VA, but I know that there's at least 1.2 million veterans, 400,000 more than the VA thinks, because Jesse Wright tells me he's got 1.2 million veterans who applied for veterans license plates. Hmm. And so there's, there's 400,000 more people who should be getting benefits, and we should at least have three more VA hospitals in Illinois than I mean, there are. That, I mean, I, why is that, though? And that was something that I, I focused on in your book, too. Why is there this reluctance and this feeling that if you take something that, you know, your guy's not going to get it. I mean, I know that you have done a lot of work on making sure the VA is getting whatever it needs and whatever it can. And again, thank you for that, because especially during these pandemic times, that's been huge. But why does this mentality still persist? Because in the military, you're taught to 
And when I say selfless, I mean that you're taught to put the greater good over your own. And, you know, it's it's something as simple as when you stand in the chow line, right? When it's time for chow and you stand in the chow line and there's a a finite amount of chow. Uh, As an officer, I went last. Like my men ate first and then I ate. Uh, That's just what you do because you don't want to run out of food and you have already eaten when your buddy hasn't. So you always make sure that you take care of your people, uh, you take care of your subordinates, and you take care of your buddies first before you take care of yourself. That's just the way you are. You 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 watch out for one another, um, and and so you know you share everything. And so you know veterans take this mentality with them, and they think that okay, I, I should be getting something that I don't really need um, because maybe my buddy needs it, um, and you just carry that over. But that's not how the VA works. The VA actually provides. There, President Obama. It was under President Obama that we passed the law that has mandatory for the v- funding for the VA's healthcare. So whatever they right. need, they get. Yeah, and there's also that suck it up mentality, and you know, I'm yeah. sure you're familiar with it. And obviously, you're a good officer. You know, I was in the artillery, and we had some good ones and bad ones. But Senator Duckworth, you know, we read your book, and can we talk about how you went from, um, an, you know, an immigrant into Hawaii? to the military, to the Senate? I know that's a big question, but could, you know, <laughs> can you sum that up for us? Um, I think you're, and I'm just going to throw this out there. I, I've been a fan since the beginning. Um, uh, as a fellow veteran, I know that you're looking out for us, but you're also looking out for the people of Illinois. And I just wanted to throw this in um, before we go. I'm, I'm proud to have you on the show, and I have never been so excited in my life to, have, to speak to someone as has been you. So just wanted to let you know that. Oh, thank you. That means a lot. Um, be, be honest. It's because of the army jokes I told in the book, isn't it? That's true. It's it, is. Good <laughs> <laughs> it is. Well, I'm not an immigrant. Let me start off by saying I'm not an immigrant. I'm a native-born American because my dad's American, but I grew up overseas. That's post- right. Um, I'm sorry. I and, no, no, it's okay. It's okay. It's a common. It's a common uh, misperception. Uh, I grew up overseas because my dad, after his military service, chose to work for the United Nations refugee programs and development programs in Southeast Asia. So he was a guy who went overseas and never came home. Uh, we, we have these guys, they, they go to Germany and they, you know, they stay in Germany or they go to Japan, they stay in Japan. And he was just one of these guys, he just stayed in Southeast Asia and he raised us there. Um, and so I got to see America from the perspective of people overseas. And it was a very idealized perspective what America was like. And, and you know, I just knew I had all these privileges because I was an American. You know, um, and, and that my life was better because as an American and my dad always said, you'd better serve, you know, you're going to serve in some way. He never thought I would serve in uniform. He thought, you know, I always thought I would serve in the Foreign Service or the Peace Corps or something. But um, we moved to the States when my dad lost his job overseas. By this point, he was working for a large corporation. They sold the business. The new owners didn't want him. And he couldn't find another job for five years. And so we landed in Hawaii. Um, not because we wanted to go to paradise, but because it was the cheapest place we could get to from Thailand. And we only had enough money to buy three plane tickets. Um, and my mom couldn't even come with us because my mom, even though she was a wife of an American and a mother to two Americans, didn't have a green card and didn't have a visa. Um, and so we landed in Hawaii where um, we were stuck and we were the working poor. I mean, you know, we, we, I, I worked in Waikiki handing out flyers to tourists to this day. If I go anywhere where it's be handing out flyers, I hand out flyers. And my job was to try to figure out whether I should hand out a booze, cru- booze cruise flyer or a romantic dinner cruise flyer based on the, guy, the person and how they were walking towards me, uh, you know. And, and I got like, I don't know, a, a dime for every one of those flyers that got turned in in addition to my, uh, my minimum wage salary. Um, and then when I graduated University of Hawaii, I only went to one school because that's all I could afford. 
Um, and, and then I moved to DC because I wanted to join the Foreign Service. I was getting my master's when I was told I should go to NIU, Northern Illinois University, to go get my PhD. Didn't want to do it. I thought, this is crazy. It's cold there. Why would I go? <laughs> <laughs> and then I got in my little yellow Dodge Charger and I drove, you know, 13 hours and I drove through the cornfields of Illinois and I just like, I was home. I can't tell you why. I, having lived this completely vagabond life from country to country, living out of the suitcase at one point, everything I owned was in two suitcases for years. I drove through the Midwest and through the cornfields and the prairie and I got to DeKalb and I was like, it's like a weight lifted off of me. Like this is this is where I belong, and I've been there ever since. It's been thirty years, and 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 I didn't know I was mid, a Midwesterner growing up until I got to Illinois. Chuck Mertz spoke with Anna Arduyushina on the emerging European market for personal data. The EU has been at the vanguard of personal privacy and have led legal actions against Google, Facebook, and Apple. But is privacy guaranteed in the age of cell phones and drones? This is Hell airs Thursdays and Sundays at 10 a.m. You write the European Union has long been a trendsetter in privacy regulation. Its general data protection regulation and stringent antitrust laws have inspired new legislation around the world. For decades, the EU has codified protections on personal data and fought against what it viewed as commercial exploitation of private information, proudly positioning its regulations in contrast to the light-touch privacy policies in the United States. So if these stringent antitrust laws and these privacy protections have been have inspired new legislation around the world, what might happen if those antitrust laws are no longer as stringent, if that privacy is no longer regulated as well? Do you think that around the world we might see, again, weaker legislation? 
Well, we are living through a historical moment where central to this to the political agenda is this idea that we need to challenge the power of big tech and we need to redistribute the value created by the data economy. Um, I am specifically interested in the future of privacy. Um, and right now I study civic data governance, specifically the policies and technologies that seek to use the data for public purposes, like data trusts or data cooperatives. And like you said, uh, when we think about data trust, the European Union is certainly a trendsetter. In, in the paper that I wrote for, for the MIT review, I was looking into the European data governance strategy and the concept of European markets for personal data. And interestingly, since then, since last August, I've seen the growing interests in, uh, interest in data trust as a means to boost artificial intelligence in several J7 countries. For instance, in, in March in the UK, the AI Council and Cambridge University launched the Data Trust Initiative. The Canadian Digital Charter specifically names data trusts as a means AI and national data economy. Last week, Belgium launched the AI Institute for the Common Good, which, which will operate its own data hub. And one aspect I, I find specifically interesting and perhaps a little problematic is that um, data trusts become a geopolitical instrument. And as such, they gain significant symbolic and economic power. Like if you if you uh, listen closely, European Commissioner Thierry Breton puts the new policies in clearly geopolitical terms when he argues that the European Union must counter the strong position of the American and Chinese companies in the European markets. So this is, um, the new legislation is coming, but first we'll see a set of new technologies and we see perhaps what you might call a Faustian bargain around privacy and data sharing. Wow, so that came up from a question from Hell. So how successful have these, uh, has the general data protection regulation in the EU, how successful has that been at not allowing what is known as surveillance capitalism? That is an economy centered around commodifying personal data for profit. Is the situation with surveillance capitalism in the European Union very different from what we have here in the United States? Uh, well, that's a great question. Thank you. So I've been I've been talking to a lot of um, uh, people who work in data governance, public officials, and work people who work in the industry, and European citizens who experience the the effects of the GDPR. And what um, the like the fast answer is that we don't know. Like this is so far. GDPR has been only partially successful. This is definitely a right step uh, in a way that it gives the residents, European residents, uh, uh, the right to know what, what data is being collected about them. It definitely is the right step because it um, actually allows everyone to understand how, how the data economy works. But unfortunately, and this has been uh, mentioned in the latest review, performance review uh, released by the European Commission, the GDPR has not been successful in enforcing technology companies you know, to protect uh, data privacy. So what happens is that uh, some, uh, some digital rights, and this is the key to understand the GDPR, is that it actually gives individuals rights to understand their data, to move their data from one service provider to another, to forbid you know, certain types of information from being processed. So some of, this, uh, some of these rights just cannot be enforced because there is no enough digital infrastructure to do that. And I think 
one of the reasons why uh, the EU has moved to launch the data trust initiative and th this whole approach, you know, to building the their own data server infrastructure, it stems from this idea that to make the privacy work, we, we can actually, we should decouple personal data from the companies that trade in data. Otherwise, no privacy legislation is going to be effective. What explains this change in thinking? You write that the new European data governance strategy takes a fundamentally different approach from the past with it. The EU will become an active player in facilitating the use and monetization of its citizens' personal data unveiled by the European Commission in February 2020. The strategy mm -hmm. outlines policy measures and investments to be rolled out in the next five years. So what explains the change in thinking? Does the EU see itself as being behind the U.S. when it comes to profiteering off of data, that it is not kept up and they are realizing there's money to be made, there's nothing to stop it, and given those circumstances, the EU should profit as well. What what are their motivations to change? Uh, so so this European, uh, the new European data governance strategy has two objectives. So the first objective is to cut access to personal and non-personal data collected from European residents for the American companies. This is very ambitious. And the European Cloud Initiative is one way of doing it. When, when the European data service are ready, companies like Facebook won't be able to move the data from the continent. And the extent of Facebook's engagement with the data will be closely monitored through the new program interfaces. So this is the way to actually enforce the GDPR. So um, to the same effect, as I understand, the EU has withdrawn from the privacy shell, the, the digital transfer agreement with the United States which had existed for 20 years. And um, back to your question. So the second objective is, so um, what they're trying to do, that they're building a sovereign digital economy. This is where the data trusts come in. So um, like you mentioned, the Data Governance Act proposes establishing the markets for the personal and non-personal data collected from European residents. And they plan to do this in, in different areas, like in healthcare, mobility, environment, public administration, agriculture. So the key idea behind this is, is Europe is big enough to have its own Silicon Valley. So yes, it should lead in artificial intelligence in terms of research um, and, and the industry, of course. And they expect that the fruits of the data economy will contribute to the well-being of all Europeans. Last week, I don't know if you've seen this, European Council has approved the Digital Europe program, which allocates 7 million Europe to the European companies working in the areas of artificial intelligence and cybersecurity. So what um, they expect that by introducing the, um, the new legislation and the new actor, which is uh, data stewards, professional data managers, they will help individuals to navigate this new privacy landscape. Um, so so through, through these companies they will or public agencies, you will be able to understand what happens with your data. You will be able to uh, restrict certain types of data from being processed and you will be able to donate data. So I, I think the idea of, you know, teaching teaching people to share the data, this is also uh, this is also key to understanding this this pivotal, you know, new new data governance strategy. Hey, Jessica, you want to go grab a bite? 
I was thinking we could work on my autobiography, Kyle, the War Years, that I've been talking about. I would love to, Kyle, but I'm actually super tapped out. I had to send some money back to my friends in Joliet. <laughs> it's okay, Jess. I'm loaded. I got a ton of cash from the scrapyard. <laughs> How? It's always leaving those metal kegs around the place, and this guy on Halstead gives me two bucks a piece. Kyle, A piece? You, uh, you know what? Never mind. Eat the rich. Where do you want to go? I was thinking the hash over at George's is pretty good. No way, Kyle. Anywhere but there. All right, that's fine. How about the Bridgeport Diner? It's good, but I'm banned, remember? The whole right. thing with the card tricks and the furs. Ah, uh, yeah, well, uh, how about that place on 35th that replaced Ramova? Uh, what you call it, uh, Maury's? Maury's? Uh, What's the matter, Jess? Well, it's just my mom works there. Hold on a sec. You're mine, Bridgeport. How come you ain't not said nothing about it yet? She and I don't really get along super well. Ah, jeez. A mother's supposed to be her daughter's best friend. That cannot be true. Or, eh, at least it's not true for me. What, what do you mean? Oh, God, Kyle. Where to begin? Oh, how about one of them audio flashbacks you like? Oh, my God, wow. It's like some of what I say gets into your head. They grow up so fast. It all began when I was a child. People were always saying that my mother and I looked alike, but whereas I have perfect, impeccable diction, my mom, well... Are you going to take all day in there? And as I grew older, it grew worse. I excelled in debate, choir, even ventriloquism. My mom couldn't handle it. Every time I opened my mouth in public, there she was. You know, I was considered for a part with the Supremes, but I was just too real for that scene. No, you weren't. Stop hogging my flashback. You don't know anything. You're just a kid. I, and it's true. I was just a kid. Until my mother stole my uh, boyfriend. Then apparently I was an accessory. An accessory? Like a purse or something? Sure. The point is, I don't want to see Diane. She stays on her side of Bridgeport. I stay on my side and a little bit of West Undertown because there's some really nice views there. Hold on a second. What did you say her name was? Diane. My, my mom's name is Diane. I used to know a Diane. Real well, in fact. Oh, yeah? You better cue up the flashback noise. So it was 1986. Gung Ho took its place in cinematic legend alongside Police Academy Tree. Everybody was Wang Chunging. I wore more complicated jeans. I was working as a wall washer at the erotic warehouse. I was young, dumb, and full of... Come on, Kyle. What? I was full of ambition. I was looking to work my way up from wall washer to videotape rewinder. Anywho, before I was so rudely interrupted... <clears throat> I was in Grant Park surveying the lunchtime garbage as I want to do when along walked the most beautiful creature that I have ever laid eyes on. And walking that Airedale was a set of legs topped with curly black hair and a catchy grin. You looking for a meal, sailor? Yeah, you knows it, honey. You want half this pizza crust? I was thinking maybe something a little classier. And that's how we ended up at Bennigan's. Kyle, can we skip the romantic montage and get to the point? Nah, it wasn't that romantic. But it was really dirty. Ugh, gross. That summer was the most magical I can recall. 
I ate people food almost every night. The boss gave me a biggest squeegee, and Diane and I would sit out late and just watch the stars. Oh, what happened? I don't know, Jess. One day, Diane left me a note saying that she had to go take care of something and wouldn't be back for several months, and that was the last I ever seen of her. Well, that's pretty depressing for a variety of reasons. Listen, if you want to go to Maury's, we can go. I guess it's okay. Thanks. Yeah, being sad makes me hungry. Couple stacks, Adam Eve on a raft, Rackham, Mujus in 51, and sweep the floor. Hi, Mom. Jessica, what, you living around here? <sighs> Mom, you know I do. You were screaming bloody murder at my apartment last night for 45 minutes. I was. Does that idiot Terry live with you? No, Mom. Anyways, this is Kyle. This is the guy that I've been working with for the radio. Well, you know, I always said you had a face for radio. Diane? Wait, Kyle? Wait, you know this Diane? Oh, yeah. Real well. Just please, no. Kyle and I used to hang right around when you were born, actually. Come to think of it, you two do look an awful lot alike. We We do do not. I'm much prettier. Wait, 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 wait. Mom, you knew Kyle in 1986. Listen, babe, I gotta go to the crapper. I think Lenny's passed out in there again. We'll catch up later. This week on The Biden Files, the House moves to make D.C. a state. Biden wants to tax very high earners. More black men are killed by American police. Pandemic numbers finally improve. The GOP remains in chaos. And 100 days in, what has Biden accomplished? Find out on The Biden Files. Day 94, April 23rd. The House has voted along party lines to grant statehood to Washington, D.C. The legislation passed would establish a 51st state called Washington Douglas Commonwealth in honor of Frederick Douglass, but would leave Capitol Hill, the White House, and other federal property under congressional control. The new state would have a single voting representative in the House and two senators representing its more than 700,000 residents. The push for statehood for the district has grown in recent years. Republicans, however, are adamantly opposed to it as they see it as two reliable votes for Democrats in a tight Senate. Meanwhile, the Senate passed legislation denouncing discrimination against Asian communities in the United States 94 to 1. Senator Josh Hawley cast the only vote in opposition. The legislation is now expected to pass in the House before heading to President Biden's desk for a signature. Hundreds of mourners attended the funeral of a black man who was shot dead by police during a driving stop outside Minneapolis. Dante Wright was killed during a routine traffic stop in the suburb of Brooklyn Center. The officer who shot him, named as Kim Potter, has claimed she mistakenly reached for a gun instead of her taser. She has been arrested on charges of second-degree manslaughter. Wright's funeral was attended by prominent local politicians and congresswomen, with Minnesota Governor Tim Walz saying Wright's death was due to the, quote, deep systemic racism faced by black Americans. Also, protests continued in North Carolina after a black man was shot while he was served a warrant. Police there claimed they were serving a high-risk drug-related warrant to Andrew Brown Jr., and shots were fired while he was trying to drive away. Body cam footage does exist, and it will be released. Day 95, April 24th. 
President Biden formally acknowledged the Armenian Genocide. A bipartisan group of more than 100 House members had called on Biden to become the first U.S. president to recognize the World War I-era deportation, starvation, and massacres of Armenians by the Ottoman Empire in what was now Turkey. Turkey, meanwhile, has denied that the killings constituted genocide, saying that the Armenians rose up against their government. 1.5 million Armenians died in that slaughter. Wisconsin Senator Ron Johnson questioned the, quote, big push to get everyone vaccinated against coronavirus, saying he sees, quote, no reason to be pushing vaccines on people. Quite honestly, what do you care if your neighbor has one or not? Johnson then added he was highly suspicious of the vaccine distribution effort because, quote, it's not a fully approved vaccine. The average daily number of coronavirus vaccinations in the United States has dropped by 11%. This is the biggest downturn in the seven-day average since February when winter storms forced vaccination sites to close. Some 8% of U.S. residents also have not returned for their second dose. Meanwhile, the CEO of a vaccine production facility made his first stock sale since 2016, selling more than $10 million worth of his company's stock. That came one day before Robert Kramer disclosed his facility had ruined 15 million doses of Johnson & Johnson's coronavirus vaccine. Day 96, April 25th. The inspector general found that Trump delayed approximately $20 billion in hurricane relief for Puerto Rico and then obstructed an investigation into the delay. Inspector General Ray Oliver Davis, who was appointed by Trump, found, quote, unprecedented bureaucratic hurdles set by the White House. She also found that the Office of Management and Budget refused to provide requested information. Trump repeatedly publicly claimed that Puerto Rico was corrupt and wasting money, and at one point asked if the USA could spin off the territory and walk away from it. An investigation held by the Office of Professional Responsibility found that a Capitol Police official told all units they should, quote, not be looking for any pro-Trump in the crowd during the January 6th rally and riot. Instead, they were directed to, quote, only look for any anti-Trump protesters. Capitol Police subsequently claimed that call has, quote, been misquoted and is in lacking in necessary context. HUD withdrew a Trump-era proposal that would have allowed single-sex homeless shelters to discriminate against transgender people. The Trump administration rule allowed federally funded homeless shelters to base admissions on a person's biological sex instead of their gender identity. And Trump's former economic advisor, Larry Kudlow, indignantly complained that President Biden wants Americans to drink plant-based beer. Kudlow claimed that Biden's climate policies and attempt to slash emissions would force Americans to, quote, stop eating meat, stop eating poultry and fish, seafood, eggs and dairy and animal-based fats. Okay, got that? No burgers on 4 July, no steaks in the barbecue, so get ready. You can throw back a plant-based beer with your grilled Brussels sprouts and wave your American flag. Beer, of course, is made from plants, a fact that Kudlow seems not to know. Day 97, April 26th. The Justice Department is to launch a civil investigation into policing practices in Louisville, Kentucky. It is the second such investigation of a major city related to the fatal shooting of a black American. Brianna Taylor was shot in her home in Kentucky during a botched police raid last year. The DOJ also announced a similar investigation into the city of Minneapolis following the murder of George Floyd. A police officer there faces 40 years in jail after his conviction of murder in that case. Also, the shooting of a black man in North Carolina, but police continues to roil that community. Despite appeals from the governor and other elected leaders, authorities have not publicly released body camera footage of that deadly encounter. Family members of the man, Andrew Brown, were shown a 20-second snippet of the shooting. The lawyer who watched with the family said Brown was sitting inside his car, hands firmly on the wheel, when gunfire began. 
The census was released and population shifts mean that five states will lose seats in the House when districts are redrawn later this year. Democrats as a whole are likely to lose three seats overall. The state of California is losing a seat for the first time in its history. Illinois is also losing one. Texas gained two. Overall, the American South and West grew while the Rust Belt showed continuing weakness. President Biden signed an executive order to create a White House task force to promote union membership. Vice President Kamala Harris will lead that task force. In 2018, Trump signed three executive orders to limit union protections and bargaining rights for federal employees. The European Union sued pharmaceutical giant AstraZeneca for allegedly not respecting its contract for the supply of vaccines and not having a reliable plan to ensure timely deliveries. AstraZeneca had pledged 180 million vaccine doses to the EU, but so far has only been able to deliver a third of that. Meanwhile, the company has steadily met supply targets in other nations, including the neighboring United Kingdom. The European Union has claimed AZ, which developed the vaccine in Britain with Oxford University, is favoring the United Kingdom. Meanwhile, the U.S. will send 60 million doses of the AstraZeneca vaccine abroad. The vaccine, which has not been authorized yet for use in the USA by the FDA, will be sent to other countries. The Supreme Court's conservative majority has agreed to hear an appeal of a New York law that restricts people from carrying concealed handguns. The ruling, which will likely come next year, is supposed to be the first major Supreme Court decision on gun rights in over a decade. The decision to hear the case reflects the influence of Trump-appointed justices like Amy Coney Barrett. Gun control advocates argue that a decision to side with appellants against a law that requires people to demonstrate they have specific and pressing needs for self-defense outside the home would effectively prevent states from regulating guns and implementing safety laws in the United States. Day 98, April 27th. Doug Collins, a former congressman and ardent defender of Trump, said that he would not seek any statewide office in 2022, narrowing the field of candidates for Senate in Georgia and removing a potential intra-party challenge to Governor Brian Kemp. Collins' decision is a setback for Trump's hopes of fielding a strong, experienced Republican candidate for Senate or governor in that state next year. Herschel Walker, the former NFL and University of Georgia football star, has been rumored to be considering a run. Trump has urged him to jump into the race. Walker, of course, played for Trump's XFL. Republican Senator Josh Hawley of Missouri claimed publicly that he is a victim of woke capitalism and cancel culture over his actions around the Capitol attack of the 6th of January. Hawley's new book, called The Tyranny of Big Tech, purports that Google and Facebook exploit user data and discriminate against conservatives. Hawley goes on to claim that his stance against big tech has led to his cancellation and a publisher dropping his book. In fact, Hawley attended the rally on the 6th of January in the Capitol, and he raised his fist in solidarity with Trump supporters from the main stage. He also echoed Trump's call to march on the Capitol and fight like hell. Those actions caused publisher Simon & Schuster to drop his book. Hawley is also notably linked with tech financier Peter Thiel. That is the founder of Palantir. They have been accused of manipulating user data and stalking users. Day 99, April 28th. President Biden has proposed almost doubling the capital gains tax rate for people earning more than $1 million, increasing the rate that they pay on that income from 20% to close to 40. The proposal would help pay for Biden's American Family Plan, which would provide hundreds of billions of dollars for universal pre-K, expanded subsidies for childcare, a national paid leave program, and free community college tuition. It would raise about $700 million. 
Department of Homeland Security limited ICE's ability to aggress immigrants in or near courthouses. ICE officers will now be allowed to make civil immigration arrests near a courthouse only if it involves national security, a risk of imminent death or harm, or involves someone who is a threat to public safety. In a related story, DHS head Alejandro Mayorkas has launched an internal probe to address the threat of domestic violent extremism within the DHS and ICE. Senate Republicans released an outline for their own $568 billion infrastructure plan. Democrats called the counteroffer to Biden's $2 trillion spending package an insult. At this time, four years ago, Congress was forced to pass a short-term bill to keep the government open. Trump was warning of a major conflict with North Korea. The House failed in multiple attempts to repeal Obamacare. Trump said publicly that he wasn't ready to be president, and Trump posted the lowest approval rating of any president ever. 68% support Biden's $2 trillion infrastructure proposal. Just 29% of Americans oppose it. 50% of Republicans say they now support the Republican Party more than they do Trump. 29% of healthcare workers in the United States said they've considered leaving their profession as a result of the pandemic. The U.S. death rate in 2020 was the highest above normal ever recorded, seeing a 16% increase from the previous year in what is called excess deaths. The 1918 flu pandemic caused a 12% jump in excess deaths. 54% of Americans approve of the job President Biden is doing. These are the Biden Files. Jeremy Lucero talked about the failed unionizing effort at Amazon's Alabama warehouse and what it means for the labor movement as a whole. Can unions regain power in the era of big tech and big capital? Labor Express airs Sunday nights at 8 p.m. To find out more about anti-union strategies in the United States, I talked to Richard Bensinger. Mr. Bensinger is a former national organizing director of the AFL-CIO in the U.S. He currently helps unions with their organizing drives. I asked him to describe the sort of tactics companies use to stop their employees from unionizing. The goal of a corporation like Amazon is to prevent at any cost any cost, their workers from having a voice in the job, having a union and any power. In order to achieve that, they have a whole arsenal of weapons at Amazon and other employers. Employers typically threaten workers to try to get them to go their way, or if that doesn't work, they can promote people out of the bargaining unit. I remember a zillion years ago when I worked in my factory, I was offered a management job suddenly to get me out of the unit. And when that didn't work, they said, well, I'll be looking over. Is Mr. Bensinger, you'll be looking over your shoulder every day the rest of your life. And when I finally was fired, it took me six years to win my job back, long after the union election was over. So, you know, the same thing exists today. Um, you smear the union. You take people in one-on-one. But the main thing that Amazon did and employers do is they totally 100% under current laws, dominate the process. And the breath and the sort of 24-nature pressure campaign of putting stress and fright and intimidating people 24-7, that has a toll on people. And when the richest guy on earth, the overlord of society, Jeff Bezos, tells you he really doesn't want you to vote somewhere, that's just not somebody else's opinion. He makes it very clear through his fanaticism. Every second you're working in there leading up to the election, it's a domination of a process. It doesn't look like an election you would run in Canada, United States for a, you know, if you're running for the, you know, a political office, electoral office. There's, there's no equal time in these elections, and 
employer can simply dominate. They can run mandatory meetings and they can fire union leaders. And even if you win your job back, like I was saying earlier, it could be months, years later that you get your job back. So it's a total control of the workplace that's certainly unprincipled, but that's what they do. There is legislation being considered in the U.S. Congress called the Protecting the Right to Organize Act, known as the PRO Act. Tell us about this proposed legislation. Well, the PRO Act is a sweeping labor law reform agenda that would, you know, give more power to workers that want to organize unions. What it is, it has a lot of provisions, but some of the most important ones are it would eliminate so-called right-to-work or right-to-work for less laws where where the union has to represent everybody, but not everyone has to be a member. It's just a design to weaken unions. It would impose much stricter penalties when employers do break the law and the right of private action by individuals to sue companies, much more stiff fines for firings and breaking U.S. labor law. It would abolish the right of a company like Amazon to have mandatory, what we call captive audience meetings, where they can force people to come in and listen. And even more effective are all the one-on-one meetings that Amazon does, where they just bend people's arm. They can be friendly. They can be threatening. You know, and all this is legal. The current, you know, their implicit threats are allowed under laws in both Canada and the United States. Following the announcement of the outcome of the union election at Amazon in Bessemer, Alabama, a little over a week ago, the RWDSU held a press call in which the union's president, Stuart Applebaum, and several of the Amazon workers expressed their feelings on the outcome of the election and the next steps in their organizing efforts. First to speak was Applebaum. Today's announcement by the NLRB may not be what we wanted, but sadly, it is one that many have come to expect. Our system is broken and Amazon took full advantage of that. But make no mistake about it, this still represents an important moment for working people. And most importantly, people should not presume that the results of this vote are in any way a validation of Amazon's working conditions and the way it treats its employees. Quite the contrary. The results demonstrate the powerful impact of employer intimidation and interference. We will be calling on the Labor Board to hold Amazon accountable for its egregious behavior during the campaign. Amazon misled and manipulated workers. They lied and tried to gain the system. Not only did they take full advantage of our terrible labor laws, we contend that they broke the law repeatedly in their no-holds-barred effort to stop workers from forming a union. We will be filing multiple charges with the Labor Board, and we are confident that the charges will be upheld. Despite overwhelmingly overwhelming odds, workers here in Bessemer have stood up to one of the most powerful companies in the world, to the planet's richest man. 
and they were heard. This is part of a much bigger story. The announcement today does not signal the end to our efforts to change the way Amazon treats its workers. What has happened here has inspired workers throughout the United States and around the world. No union election in decades has received this much attention. That's because this was never an ordinary union election. It transcends this one workplace and even this one company. The campaign garnered worldwide attention because it shows with painful clarity the profound imbalance of power, full fueled by corporate greed and racism between workers and large corporations. And it also brought into high relief the total failure of our laws to protect workers when they try to form a union. Despite this outcome, many of the workers here have shown real courage. They have stood up and spoken out. And they have shown just how much needs to be changed. The struggle in Bessemer was and is as much a civil rights struggle as a labor struggle. The Black Lives Matter movement and other civil rights activists joined with supporters throughout the labor movement and came together here. It is a powerful coalition that harkens back to the energy and hope of the civil rights era. This week, we debut new music from Chicago's own Layla Frankel. Singer and songwriter Frankel will be releasing her Postcards from the Moon EP tomorrow. This is the debut single of that release. In a radio premiere, this is You Can't Love Me Like I Loved You. And every day I found salvation in you I was loving you 
senselessness Only senselessness and suffering I can't find no sense Can't find no sense in keeping you around Because you can't love me like I love you complete. Now playing, Eureka Cast Now. Inspire curiosity. Imagine science. Before now, researchers have only been able to successfully predict accidents seconds before they happen. Mm-hmm. Seconds. That's, at that point, that's too late. There's not a lot of wiggle room no. at that point. It's, there's not a lot of opportunity to put in controls to be able to react to it right. with some, seconds to go. Sometimes all, yeah. So, in fact, that's a, great, that's a great point. All that car can do is do a little wiggle and hope it avoids the accident. We, and I just think that's bad engineering. And obviously it has not worked uh, as, as uh, evidenced by certain events. Yeah, and, it's, and it's only, in some cases it's only made the problem worse. But thanks to advanced AI developed by Tech Brothers, partially the New Media Labs, and hundreds of sensors located all around the vehicle, we are able to predict accidents with above 80% certainty up to one minute before they happen. Now, that's that's quite incredible. How are you able to verify that? How are you able to... That you know, as someone who has dabbled in mm. prognostication, right? Someone who has dabbled in fortune telling as part of their professional career, mm. 
that's very difficult to do up to a minute, especially in such a uh, energetic, fast-paced world. Yeah, it, life is a highway. Certainly on the highway. Certainly, right. it is a highway. Uh, how 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 is the uh, the AI able to to do this? What it, what is that based off of? Well, you know, the same thing happens. Rowan, what your questions, your concerns, same things we heard from chess masters 20, 30 years ago is that how could a computer beat me in chess? How can it predict my moves so accurately? And it turns out it's not too difficult. Particularly here, we're using quantum computing quantum computing yes now wow that's and and that is incorporated into the automobiles uh yeah kind of eureka cast now broadcasting saturdays 8 to 9 p.m on lumpen radio the Lumpen Week in Review is produced by the staff and volunteers of wlpn lp chicago the community radio of the future the Week in Review is overseen by Jamie Trecker, voiceovers by Shannon Van Volt, additional production by Cole Eisenberg, Julie Wu, Sergio Rodriguez, Neil Gaynor, Lane Gerbig, Alexander Jerry, John Piotrowski, Ari Shellist, and Annie Klein. Live music production by Ari Shellist. The Lumpen theme, background, and interstitial music is by Mike Perkins. The Lumpen Radio Sting is by Dan Jugal. For more information on Lumpen Radio, visit lumpenradio.com. Yeah.